Kevin Parrott and Open Cures. Kevin is the founder of Open Cures, a cancer survivor, and has focused the last 20-ish years of his life on longevity. We dive into the world of citizen science and the power of individuals to drive the development of preventative and personalized medicine. Open Cures Biobank and Kevin's plans to affect longevity. If you like this type of unedited, long-form content, please like and subscribe. Every bit helps. We are working to put out two to three episodes every week and have cool things planned for when we reach 10,000 new subscribers. Additionally, in this episode, I'm still recovering from the flu, so I have a cough. I cough a little bit. Just want to give you guys a heads up. Chapters and show notes below. Let's stay curious and learn about Kevin, Open Cures, and the mystery that is longevity in this episode of the Learn with Lowell Show. So, for people who are unfamiliar with you, um, what is basically the, your main thesis on aging, and then how does it relate to Open Cures and the work that you're doing? Aging uh, for me has evolved over you know the past couple of decades that I've been studying it. And for me, at first, it was this damage repair. And then I became to realize that uh, everything is sort of informational and information doesn't necessarily have substance. Uh, there's dynamics and algorithms and relationships, um, which rather, rather than individual entities. So I think there's two components to aging now. I think there's a regulatory sort of informational, uh, almost a non-material emergent type of a, of a deterioration of the integrity of an information system. And that deterioration is often caused by damage, not just often, probably caused by damage to the individual components of the system. But then there seems to be sort of like, how do those, uh, it's the maintenance of those systems. Um, it may not be inevitable that we do not have self-repair. We can, how far can we push self-repair uh, before we just give up and say, okay, now we have to do, you know, exogenous sort of types of treatments to address different types of damage. I think they have to go hand in hand, basically. And then um, for open cures, like how is that impacting? How does uh, that like lens affect yeah, like how you yeah, make decisions so, and stuff? So yeah, so aging itself obviously <clears throat> is a problem. I basically figured I, I'm 59. I've been doing this for a couple of decades. I thought that I, I started out when aging was not a financial incentive. In fact, people thought you were crazy if you talked about doing anything about aging at all. Um, so I was never involved for, for the sort of financial incentives of it. And it's changed uh, for me. The impact would be the glass ceiling of aging, trying to do something about it in you know, improve the world because of it. And there is really no way of getting there if you don't measure things prior to the onset of the degenerative conditions that we now call aging. But there are so, for me, there's now pathological uh, changes occurring at the biochemical level. You know, you don't see them, you don't feel them, but they're occurring. And those are the fundamental aberrations and imbalances in biochemistry in the system that lead to the eventual, you know, sort of like rust, you know, long before you see bubbles in the paint, you know, there's rust going on in the metal, you know, sometimes for years before you start to see that. So I believe I backed up and I look at aging now as almost a biochemical problem. And uh, so I think we need to be able to predict what these biochemical aberrations result in, but you can't predict if you don't measure. So 
my view has gone from finding actual interventions, you know, because we've been looking at rapamycin for 13 years. We've, you know, I mean, it's pretty ridiculous, actually, that we haven't gotten better interventions uh, on the go since we've actually started this journey. Um, and so I'm going, how can we warp speed? You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how can we warp speed the development of interventions? And so instead of focusing on individual interventions, which are in, by and large minor improvements to what Mother Nature can do, uh, so how do we get to the real ability to do something about aging and measure the effectiveness of interventions? So Open Cures is about gathering the necessary data from humans that can be used to drive a prediction engine to tell them when their health is not good, not bad. I mean, it's it's what a lot of people are doing with biological scores and all sorts of other things. Uh, we, you know, we have somebody who has just arrived. Hello. You'll have to edit that out. Thank you. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll start with the biological scores. So um, I think this is the multi omic data gathering that yeah. you've been doing right it's, it's multi-omic data um everything is health data your social network data dictates your mental health your financial data sort of probably also dictates your mental health you know there's a whole bunch of ways of gauging how healthy you are and it's not just physically healthy because uh, all everything is interwined and just looking at your biochemical levels or various other biomarkers is not really enough. That's a snapshot, but it doesn't tell you how the dynamic system, how healthy is the dynamic system. So I, I often will say, okay, everybody goes to genetics is, you know, genes are the be all and end all for a lot of people, uh, computationally, especially. Um, but when you want to know how well your car is operating, you don't go look at its blueprint. Mm -hmm. no. I mean, how, how healthy are you today? Well, you're not going to go look at your genome. You shouldn't, yeah. you know, genome's a pretty poor predictor uh, as to how healthy you are unless you have a pretty major flaw in your in your blueprint. So that's kind of where everybody's been focusing on is the real sort of easy stuff, uh, often just to make you know, money. You know, what is the easy stuff that I can use to make cash? Not what is the most important stuff that I can use to minimize the time to development, to the development of interventions. So that's my, my key uh, driver is minimizing time. Everything else is a slave to that particular goal, including maximizing profit. So of course, it's always good to make money and sustain yourself, but if you're dead, you can't spend it. If you're sick, you're probably still not gonna be able to spend it. So it kind of, it's, it's remarkable to me that uh, everybody is as insane as they are about acquiring you know, power and position and reputation and all of these sort of monkey brain uh, goals instead of saying okay what's the real problem here is that we all are running out of time and how do we reward those individuals and entities which are working on ways of maximizing time and minimizing the time to the development of those those methods so right now there isn't a system that does that does that and the reason why is because the actual customers for these interventions are not responsible for you know uh, helping create them or fund them or research them. So the customer is never really served here um, in terms of the medical environment. Uh, 
I'm a cancer survivor. Uh, it was actually the best thing that ever happened to me because it put me on this path because while I was laying in the hospital bed wondering why is it that science and uh, the best that medicine have to offer have to offer is like poison and surgery. You know, mm. this is this is the limit of, of the benefit of what modern technology is capable of producing. And this was quite a while ago. So things have moved on. We got CAR T and a few few things, but still, and the iterative, the iterative discovery to application cycle is slow, I mean, and halting, and it's just impossible. So for me, after 20 years of, of trying to minimize time to the development of interventions, I realized that the whole system is backwards to that. It doesn't, it's not responsive to the needs of the customer, the patients. You know, I, I, uh, I come from a family background where we have a retail business. We sell power sports, motorcycles, and snowmobiles, and we've been in business for over 50 years. And I managed a company for a couple of decades. And it was, you know, if customers are not served, you go broke, <laughs> which yeah. is why we survived for 50 years while we've buried 30 or 40 competitors and why we're still very, very successful is because we actually serve the needs of the customer. If if the medical system and the research system were a health, the current health technology development uh, paradigm was a business and its survival depended on customer satisfaction, it would be dead in the water in a half an hour or an hour. You know, it would not take long yeah. for people to figure out that everything is actually <clears throat> just using the misery and the suffering of individuals as a, as a you know, they say, they give it lip service, yeah, we're trying to help the sick and the dying, but actually, no, we're, we're trying to help the sick and the dying, but we're going to get our cut first, basically, or we're going to, it, it's, they're, they're padding their CVs, and they're padding, they're padding their pocketbooks with the misery and suffering of other people. They don't like to think of themselves like that. Um, there's a lot of good people within the systems who are definitely not like that. But the system is a system. And the emergent motivation of the system and the emergent incentives of the system depend upon those who pay for the work. And if those who pay for the work, somebody said it's uh, the man who pays the piper calls the tune. And that's exactly what we're getting. It's operating exactly as it should be, exactly as the people who fund the system want it to. And it's because they're all healthy. The None of them are up against the wall with a degenerative, life-threatening condition. If it was, there would be a substantially different view uh, and speed, you know, coming out of research and, uh, and medicine. Um, there's a guy named Orrin Hatch. Uh, you might be familiar with him. He was a congressman out of Arizona, I think. And uh, he was uh, anti-stem cell. Embryonic stem cells was the big deal, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And yeah, so we can't possibly have embryonic stem cells. And this guy was like totally against it. He was one of the leading anti-stem cell, uh, embryonic stem cell proponents. <laughs> and then his daughter became a type one, was a type one diabetic. Yeah. Oh my goodness, he's sure, you know, he's not against stem cells anymore. You know, yeah. it, it took him 24 hours to change his tune, basically, I think. It I mean, on a dime. So what we have is a whole bunch of gatekeepers and a whole bunch of con control freaks, psychopaths, you know, feeding off the sick and the dying. They're a bunch of death eaters. And I've about, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I had hoped in my mind 20 years ago that, you know, 
that wasn't this wasn't the case. I didn't just hope. I assumed it wasn't the case. I assumed that given, you know, and that given the right uh, opportunities and the right possibilities, that these things would just unfold naturally. You know, that there would be this uh, emergent desire. And then I wondered, why is this not happening? Why do we just seem to be going around in circles against the same problems? No funding and greed and all these seems always just keen, seem to be the impassable thing. And uh, it's because people are monkey brained and they don't think long term. They don't think that they are going to actually be the one to draw the short straw and get sick. Or if they are, they just put it out of their mind. So there's this psychological reality, which our conscious minds do not want to acknowledge. You know, when I very, very first, Ben Best, who is uh, one of the cryonics, you know, pioneers, uh, wrote an article, I think it was one of the very first articles I ever read, called Life Extension, or Why Live It All, basically. And because there's all these people talking about, oh, you know, the aging and only for the rich and all of these, you know, absolutely bizarre in a rational way, uh, you know, all these things people put in front of them so that they, they don't have to uh, do anything. And we, the systems, the medical system and the research system are emergent products of normal human society and normal human thinking. And... <clears throat> Normal humans don't have a survival instinct is what I've found. You know, when I was four or five years old and I understood that there was a mort some mortality, things got old and died, I was horrified. Freaked me right out. Hated it. Thought it was the worst thing. Terribly unfair. Couldn't happen. And then I thought, oh, well, by the time I'm needing it, but 40 or whatever, over time, I'll, there'll be something there for me and I'll be able to, you know, take advantage of it. And of course, I got to be 40 and now I'm 59. And this is just like, fuck, eight, I'm staring down the barrel of, of an octogenarian, like another mm -hmm. 20 years, I'm going to be 80. And that's not a good look. I don't care what, you know, what happens between now and then. It's probably not going to do much about 80. And I thought, this is not going to work. And people do not have a survival instinct. They don't, uh, not enough of us anyway, because there has been on the table rapamycin. There's been all, lots of indications that aging has been an approachable problem for many, many years, but nothing has been done about it. And normal, and it's because normal people just don't care. They don't think about it. They're too busy doing, being distracted. You know, what's that movie with, uh, you know, don't look up. You know? Yeah, that's a, that gave me anxiety. I was like, oh, yeah. I hope not. But I could see it. <clears throat> that, Anyhow, that was so not a fun my, movie. Yeah, this is the distillation of my thinking is that I'm running out of time. Um, my parents are even shorter on time, which is a totally interesting topic is well, how can we all just write off the older generation? How is it that 99.9% .9 of the people that I've met who are involved in the longevity space never talk about saving the lives of their parents or their older loved ones? This is not a focus. It's not even a fucking topic. It really, really blows me away. It's because everybody is just so involved with what's in it for me. And that is total monkey brain, especially when it comes to a common adversary called aging, which is killing us all and is going to kill us all the way it's been killing us all for millennia, ever since humans were around. We are within shooting distance of taking out the greatest adversary that humanity has ever faced, 
and were diddling around competing with each other for, for pennies. And I tell you, I've had it. I've definitely, but you're going to have to please edit some of these things out because I do not, I, do, I mean, I want people to understand how important it is that we collaborate, yeah. that we cooperate. We have a common enemy. And I don't care if you collaborate with me. You may not like me. You may, we may not, you know, we may have had problem, you know, maybe your personalities are different. Maybe you just don't like each other. It's fine. But work with somebody. Work with somebody and don't be so self-involved that you think you have the same, you know, or have the only answer or that you have the answer or the approach or this and that and the other thing. We can't even measure aging properly yet. We still don't have the metrics. And uh, so from Open Cure's perspective, I want to gather the data that's capable of predicting if an intervention is working or not. <laughs> in short term, in the short order. So can we measure a biological system and uh, get baselines, et cetera, and then do something to that system and tell the person whether or not it's getting better? Yeah. That is so fundamental because if we could create a platform that allowed it. So my goal would be to have an in silico version of human health a model of human health that we could do clinical trials on ultimately because human clinical trials are incredibly expensive. They take forever. And if we have to, if that's what the only tool we have to develop interventions with and test them with, I am personally dead. Maybe you won't be, you know, you might have a, maybe 10 or 15 years, there'll be something. But for me, it's acute. And for my parents, it's even more acute. And people are being rewarded for delaying things as usual. You know, delays don't mean anything to people who are healthy. So yeah, this is the lack of alignment of incentives of the customers for these things with those who are producing and the fact that there's no feedback loop, positive or negative. There's no way for us to reward, you know, it's researchers we like or the research we think is important. And there's no way for us to punish those who are wasting our resources and taking they're taking too much time. So fundamentally, this is so I'm working on open cures. I'm trying to source pub, in the public using advanced diagnostics te technologies to help them measure their health at the highest resolution possible using things like mass spectroscopy. I mean, this is not a new idea, but standardization of data storage, standardization of uh, the methods of sharing data, if anybody wants to share it, which is, again, a major problem. They don't want to share because they think their particular chunk of data is yeah. a billion dollar idea. Like yeah, and it's not. You know, our data is actually worth much, much more together from the synergies we would get from these analysis of the multi-dimensions than any of these uh pieces of data or dimensions of data are worth on their on their own. In fact, the, it's in the combi combination that you see a much greater emergent value. But so as long as you think that the thing you're holding on to is, you know, worth everything is going, <laughs> it's just, it's phenomenal. So creating a model, in silico model and giving that free, that much like developing a calculator. It's the first Texas Instruments calculator. Everybody was doing long division and, you know, with a pencil and paper and an abacus, and then somebody developed the calculator and suddenly the world was able to do math, you know, quickly and easily. 
And we're at that stage where we in biology, where we need to have these tools that enable rapid, iterative discovery and application, and not just hang our hat on single interventions that we hope are going to have an effect and make us a billion dollars, but then you still have the fact that you're going to die, you know? So, so the end in mind. So, um, Finding those like-minded people who know what's really at stake, you know, uh, is our lives and the lives of our loved ones. And that minimizing time is the thing, the only, the only thing that makes sense. Because when you're on your deathbed in the hospital, you've just run out of time. You may have a lot of money, you might have a lot of friends, might have a lot of other material things, but you do not have time. So that's the key. So getting a, creating a platform uh, sharing a platform that allows rapid iterative discovery uh, using, you know, the tools that should be publicly available and not hoarded and hidden um, will allow actual interventions to be developed that do things that people can pay for. And then people should be paid out of the profits of, of actually reducing the suffering or the needs of somebody customer. Up until now, it's just a Ponzi scheme. Everybody just you know, trying to series A, series B, start up this, start up that. It's a whole bloody religion ar- around it and nothing at the end of it. You know, I've been involved with some companies now, 10 years down the road, pretty much, and millions of dollars and lots of conversations and thousands of hours of meetings and chit chat and all the rest and canapes and JP Morgan conferences and uh, you know, and, and none of it has been actually resulted in the reduction of suffering of anybody. Not a single fucking person has benefited from any of these people. And yet they're all still, you know, having fun, you know. Yeah. We're, we're is, forgetting about why, why we're doing this. Is it possible to <clears throat> in, uh, align the incentives, even in terms of the people making the donations? So it's like giving blood. So they, uh, maybe they don't get paid up front, but as the data is used by other people, as you license it or people uh, draw That's access exactly. to it. So, so this is, so this is, so the incentive for me is people who use open cures to, yeah. for their health, they get their individual health results, which they can use to manage their own health, to improve their health. But then they pool that data. They yeah. also have bio samples, which I biobank. So we're creating <laughs> a bio, a biobank. Uh, we create a biobank for them as well. So they, but they own their, data and they own their biosamples, biospecimens. And when and if we get enough data and enough biospecimens together that it is becomes attractive to research and or industry, we will ask those people to who, who own the data, it's like a collective or a cooperative, and say, would you like to participate in this particular thing? And if so, you will get this, but you will only get this if your participation results in in an actual product or service. So this is a long-term thing, but we could, but there's lots of strategies. We could just pay them a little bit up front and, you know, just to incentivize and get this gamification of keeping people's monkey brain attention going. So we have to have, the reality is, is we have to have ways of engaging people, including my own monkey brain, you know, uh, in order to to keep this incentivized, this this continuous engagement. Um, it's, It's high quality data that we're looking for from people who are disciplined enough to do the same thing the same way, 
you know, have a little bit of self-discipline and that's not a lot of people. So the strategy is though, like, as you said, uh, to, um, to help to incentivize, to align the incentives of the consumer with the research that's being done and then reward that, you know, you have, you reward what you get, right. Or you get what you reward is, is, is what we need to do. So we need to really collectively think about that. What do we want? If it's money, that's what we're going to get. If, because we're going to design all of our systems, we're going to the status quo. That's what the status quo is built to built to provide. It's not. It's not meant to find cures. That's absolutely hilarious. You know, it's not meant to find cures. It's meant to uh, maximize profit and ego for those people uh, who invest in it. It wasn't that way when I first started. It was purely philanthropic uh, because it was a joke to suggest that you could do anything about aging. But the more popular it's become and the more you see these key opinion celebrity pounds out there hawking their wares and manipulating, you know, policies and procedures for their benefit. You know, I think it's uh, painful, frankly, what's going on. And uh, we have a hundred and some, as Aubrey has mentioned many times, we have a hundred some thousand people dying every day. And that is what I'm focused on. That's what brought me to this, uh, to this thing, to this whole effort. I know. And uh, it's depressing because it's, it's kind of cha- it's changed my view about humanity and, but maybe I was too idealistic and altruistic to begin with. I just assumed people won't, had a survival instinct. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to die of aging. And I was willing to do, and I am willing to do almost anything to help avoid that. And that's what I've dedicated my life to. Doesn't seem to be the case with most of my, uh, there's a core group of people who we who started out all pretty much at the same time uh, through the Immortality Institute, which then became Longevity. And though that core group of people is still doing awesome stuff. And when we get together, we know, we know why we're doing this. And there is something that binds us together in that reality of that truth. But the rest of them that came along after, it's an interesting uh, hodgepodge. There isn't a, the, you don't have the same sort of purity of understanding of what's really at stake with, uh, with a lot of those. One, one population I thought would be really interesting in terms of just like synergizing like where the research is happening, where there's interest, and at the same time where there's a population that already does a lot of studies is in college. Like there's tons of people doing research in college. There's tons of people who, you know, would love like an extra like 20 bucks or something to like do something while also doing something nice. Like how many, like in, in neuroscience, there was like, you, you give people like a $10 gift card and they're like happy for a week. So like the, the costs are quite low. And at the same time, there's like, there's like new universities all the time wanting to do research. So you could kind of make a couple of hubs. I don't know if you're already doing something like that, but I feel like that's a really good opportunity to find people that are, you know, already kind of in an, in an area where there's a where they can make a data data lake for you, and then make use of that data lake immediately, and then find like some type of like a shared licensing agreement with grants or something. I'm not uh, in in terms of like how grants work, but I, I feel like in terms of like how your stuff works, I feel like that'd be pretty clean. No, for sure. I mean, there's I've got a charity. Uh, called Open Cures Access, which I'm probably mm. going to name. I've got a for benefit. Um, you know, so there are multiple organs and multiple approaches with multiple incentives yeah. that are accessible for doing things. 
the uh, educational uh, appealing to sort of the youthful, you know, would you like a slice of pizza in exchange for your liver? You know, I think that would be uh, an interesting thing to try. I think you have to keep, you know, and anything goes. Uh, the best that what we what we need is people to measure their health at one point in time. We need health measured from different ages at different ranges. If I could go back in time and measure 25-year-old me and then compare it to 59-year-old me, there would be something different. I'm same genome, I'm my own internal control, but something has happened. <laughs> something, something has happened to this person that used to be a youthful 25 and has turned and morphed into this, you know, and there's a multiple, uh, you know, sensitivities now that I have that I didn't have back then. So if we could compare the metabolomics, proteomics and genome uh, with the genome, we would have the, an idea of the overlap of what is it between that and if you do that with enough people, but then you have to go back in time and try and find a sample from that. Now, the question is, would we be able to take a whole bunch of young people's samples and then at every age, you know, static slices, you're not following the same person, obviously. So you can have cross-sectional types of data sets. Is, would there be enough noise or uh, would you be able to reduce the noise, the difference in variability between individuals enough to get at the root, some of these root changes yeah. in the system? And I think that there, there would be. Um, so I think, you know, incentive, but it's, it's, yeah, the incentivization, you need to find groups that are motivated to take, a, who would take action if they, if the barriers to doing so were lowered or if the incentives are are higher and uh, young people are more you know idealistic you, you know they want to help they want to be involved they want to learn they're not so pessimistic about cynical about the world because they haven't lived long enough to see everything that happens but yeah i think that that's a that would be a great suggestion and i would pair that up with going into you know standing outside of uh going into old folks homes and finding out old folks who have nothing better to do. <laughs> Maybe they want, but that, as soon as you want to start doing anything medical and not, not even medical, anything that involves biology, biological research is often conflated and lumped in with doing things that are medical. And mm. they want to make sure, you know, the systems are all put in place to protect <clears throat> the vulnerable and the gullible. And I guess the gullible are vulnerable but um, from being exploited. And, yeah. but I am not gullible, nor am I vulnerable. And I'm still being prevented from accessing mass spectrometry to, uh, you know, to analyze my own health. Only that was not anymore because now I have open cures because I can now send my samples out to any company that has an assay um, that will accept my sample and they'll return my results. But everybody's so frightened of regulation. And if you want money, you have to get, this is the beauty of, of not really wanting the money personally. You need the money for your company to expand and grow and do the good things that it wants to do. But um, I'm not motivated by cash, uh, uh, except in as much as that cash can minimize time to the development of therapies. So it's rather freeing uh, to some degree. So um, is the, 
bottleneck uh, money or is the bottle? Uh, it sounds like it might be multivariable, but to what extent is it like you need like a thousand people's data points over like 10 years and then you don't have that, maybe only have like 10 people or something like what is, What are the bottlenecks for you? Just if, if you had all the money, what were the bottlenecks in terms of just being able to build that foundation that we need? That's an that excellent question. So I was working with uh, William Millard, who is the... Uh, <laughs> who's the high net worth individual that one of the few that I, I've met that actually has his, has a brain. And he has, um, he basically said, uh, these things should be like water. People should just get in the shower and, and it should, they should just uh, come over him. And he says, always imagine what would the system be like with if money were, were, were no object. And so with, if that was the case, what would the ideal situation be? Well, you would want to speed, minimizing time is the, is the goal. So you would want immediately to go out and measure as many people as possible. And then you need to follow them a little bit, I think. I, I, unless you can find patterns within, again, this is the problem with cross-sectional versus longitudinal data is that you don't know if you can, the sample size you would need for cross-sectional data is going to be substantially larger than you would need if you were following the same group of individuals longitudinally, but then you're giving up speed for time. And uh, there's, the, there's the compromise there. But at the end of the day, maybe both, if money's no object, do both, you know? Do, and so uh, it's just about finding as many people as you can measuring them with the same assay with this has to be as accurate as possible you know and produce as much data as possible because we don't really necessarily know what we're looking for and that is the problem is that a lot of people you know assume we know what we're looking for or at least they know what they're looking for you know it's their idea it's mTOR of course or it's whatever NAD or all sorts of different uh, systems so that's what they want to look at. For me, I want these large, unbiased types of uh, as assays as highly accurate as possible. And right now, the only tech that can do that is mass spec properly that I've been able to see. NMR, you know, various other ones are coming along. Uh, um, but it's about measuring genomics, metabolomics, and proteomics, and combining those multiomic data. So. I would want to bring together the best brains who understand this data and how it's related, these systems, and work on how do we create not just a human genome, but the human multiome. So there needs to be really a global effort to decipher the human multiome. And, and uh, you know, I don't see why this isn't already a major push across the planet, but actually I do understand why. It's because the only reason why we wound up with the Human Genome Project was because Craig Venter threatened to patent the human genome with Solera Genomics. So we need we need to actually create a for-profit company and threaten the academic industry that we're going to, you know, patent the proteome and the genome and the, uh, if, as long as they get a cut, they'll probably be fine with that, you know? It's just, it's, it's monkey brain stuff. We have this evolved neural net in the, that's meant for a austerity, you know, deprivation. And that is, you know, that's how our brains are built. And even in an era of abundance, which, you know, that's the disconnect we have with why we have so much stuff, but yet we want more. You yeah. know, it, it's a fear. Um, yeah. Is there, is there like a, 
a population size though? Is it like, do you need, I mean, I mean this is all hypothetical, right? Cause you don't know, but is it a thousand people? Is it 10,000 people? Like what, what do you expect? I, yeah, it to be? I, I think that's a suit. That's always the biggest question. Some people who study genomics given genomic data need to have very large end sizes in order to look for find patterns, meaningful patterns. I don't, that's not the same with metabolomics. So metabolomics mm -hmm. uh, studies with uh, David Bennett at Rush University, population uh, cohort size of 2,500, was able to show you know various relationships for Alzheimer's disease, which were really remarkable. And it just falls out of the data, not just not ambiguous at all, you know, just straightforward statistics. You know, you can almost see it happening by eye. So there's a lot of low hanging fruit in these these things, even with small end sizes. It depends on the question you're asking, and yeah. you know some of this, you know. So this is why you need to get people who are specialists in each type of data, and then bring them together because we really they individually don't know what is the. Very few people have thought about how do the different types of dimensions of data. How would they come together, and under what context would they be really productive to bring them all together? How all of these questions and size. I think. You know, if we had a whole bunch of people that were really disciplined and willing to be sort of like uh, part of a cohort that was going to create this in silico model, uh, you know how Craig, Craig uh, Venter, when he measured his own genome and it became part of the first genome project. So I think as pioneers, and I'm, I'm attracted to the idea that it would be my data that I would go into building the first virtual you know model of human health that would go on to assist in the you know building and the reduction of suffering of billions of people that to me is that knowledge that awareness uh, so i think a thousand people you know following wow. themselves and even less a hundred people you know it's and but you have to take it into consideration ethnicity and all the rest of this but um Basically, there's there, it depends on what the level of, of it. So uh, we use reference libraries, which are not when I'm when we do assays here in Open Cures, we have a reference population which of all ages, of all and both genders. So they're a healthy population, but they're all there's what twenty to eighty or ninety years old, and and the the CEO of Prodrome Sciences, who I work with uh, quite closely. He brought it home to me because everybody says, so this is my result. Uh, I'm, and how do I compare against my peers? You know, people my age, my gender, that sort of thing. And he goes, I don't want to be the healthiest person in a wheelchair. You know, in an old folks home, how are you doing for 87? Well, I'm better than him. You know, mm -hmm. he's, laying a, he's got drool napkins and he's in a straitjacket. So, you know, I'm better than him. You know, so I think we need to decide the as a group, uh, who are we going to compare ourselves to? And that N will need to grow or contract accordingly. So if we open up the door and we just say we want to measure all ethnicities, we don't care. Obviously, we're not going to find out those differences between Asians and Chinese people if we don't use those, if we don't identify those as reference, uh, reference populations. If we just include everybody, we're going to see the biggest levers that apply to humanity not just that are in that are the biggest levers in our genome that apply to all ethnicities and all ages so i th i like the idea of approaching it from there because that's the easiest thing <laughs> mm -hmm. it's the easiest to do 
but that doesn't that's not attractive to people who already have some sort of horse in the race where they want something answered for their own reasons yeah well i i think it'd be interesting if there was just like a like a like a a bar on your website and it just had like a you know 30 percent to the thing and then when the thing you know kind of like when they do fundraisers and stuff or a kickstarter um because there was um i forget the name signal life science bio they're another longevity (coughs) sorry longevity uh nonprofit. forget their name life science io they're like pretty big lifespan.io there you go yeah and they were doing uh end of the year fundraising and i was like hey you guys should have a like a page where it says like hey for every like ten thousand, you get to do x y and z and I was like, you should have that because every every fundraiser that I've seen that does something like that, they always go above and beyond what they want because people can picture what they do. There's one called Herfer International where they say, hey, for every ten dollars, you um you're gonna give a family like five chickens, and that five chickens is gonna you know yeah. this amount of eggs. Yeah, and that yeah. like people um I mean sometimes like everyone's really busy, right? right like right. you're saying, yeah, and they can um just come in and then get a sample of like how helping this, even if it's just like financial. Um, can impact uh, people's lives in such a concrete way. Um, though you do have a really beautiful website, so I mean, you know, you're doing good in uh, that, that regard. Was, you know, I had almost nothing to do with it. I, uh, <laughs> so I've got a I've got a co-founder uh, who's uh, now we're both kind of focusing on other things. Uh, so the Open Cures aspects we've launched off of Open Cures into this uh, something called uh, it, it's uh, it's going to be a new effort which is moving closer to this uh, type of a model of collecting data from everybody. But yeah, so uh, Vincenzo Domina, he's been a fantastic asset and I hope you have a chance to meet him sometime. Uh, almost for sure you will because um, he's involved with so many other things. He's uh, quite a character. Mm-hmm. Is um, We talked about data a lot. To what extent is machine learning or AI or any of these type of technologies being applied to this? It sounds more like bioinformatics, which isn't too far off from machine learning, I think. But uh, yeah, how does it, I don't know the hood, how does this stuff work? Well, I think we're all going to be out of jobs pretty soon, frankly. You know, I think, well, that's I think nice. you know, when, when uh, hopefully, I mean, maybe we can move on to doing something more productive. Um, but the um, chat GPT, as well as uh, what, web GPT, and there's a few, really I mean, powerful. These, these tools are coming out. Uh, going to interface with machine learning. It's fantastic. You know, machine learning is exactly the kind of tool that we need to go into these vast amounts of data and pull out patterns, you know, with, with that we're hopefully looking for. Like if we could define, you know, 25 years old is model of human health, you know, you have a whole bunch of healthy 25 year olds of all ethnicities you know, just store their data, measure them in every which way, use a machine learning tool then to do the same thing and see whether or not what happens to you after that period. And um, it's it's going to play a role um, in a lot of ways I, in making suggestions, I think, yeah. uh, to where to go. But I don't think it's going to just yield, you know, stuff that is going to be essential in artificial intelligence, uh, as far as narrow AI, for sure, it, we may in the next year or, you know, I've seen like there's a illicit.org is a sort of a research tool that puts, oh, it's just amazing. But so, I mean, research is going to be so easy uh, for people. Of course, you have to check the results that the research engine gives you. But instead of having to wade through like 80% non-relevant results, you can only have to wade through like 10% non-relevant results. So yeah. it really cuts, it cuts down the amount of time 
And of course, it's and then it's going to draw its own associations. You know, anything that's written down in a in a reasonably even language structured manner is going to be amenable to artificial intelligence, and it's going to be able to infer, draw inferences, draw connections that are you know people who already are focused on one particular narrow part of the science will never be able to find or never want to find. That's already been done. Uh, you know, Stanford uh, research, or I can't remember what his name is. Golly, it escapes me. He's one of the larger, he's, he's a bigger name uh, in multiomics. <clears throat> Just my whole brain can't remember it. Um, but they, they use computer models for diabetes, and they confirmed uh, multiomically what we already knew about diabetes and the biomarkers, et cetera, involved. But they also proposed some new ones that we never would have come up with on our own without the help of, of the AI and that were significant. So it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a vast glut of you know possibilities coming at us that we're going to need to you know juggle and put together as fast and quickly as possible. And I'm sorry, postdocs, the human brain is we, we can't keep up anymore. I mean, we let's just, just be honest with ourselves as far as, you know, we need these tools. We should be developing these tools as fast as possible. And, you know, people should just be stepping out of the way and letting computers be out of this. I'm sorry. Just uh, get rid of that. And I will. No worries. Uh, <clears throat> is, um, but it, it sounds like, so it's just bioinformatics in terms of how you interpret the data that you're currently gathering. It doesn't sound like you're uh, applying any machine learner AI so far. You really don't need to right now. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the stuff that um, uh, was coming out of David Bennett's uh, work at Rush University with the smaller cohort of 2,500 people, you know, just great, just regular statistics was able to pull out an awful lot of stuff. I mean, everybody wants to work with the latest and the coolest and the grooviest and, you know, what the cool kids are doing. But if you really want to get the job done, you say, okay, what do we actually really need? And let's start there. Let's let let's develop these other tools, but we can do an awful lot of good. We don't have to wait for them. <laughs> we don't have to wait. We can actually, there's a tremendous amount we can do with the tool today. Is um, So for open source, it sounds like it'd be really uh, complicated in biotech. I mean, we've been kind of touching on it thus far. Are there other layers that we haven't addressed that, I mean, I, so, sometimes I, I don't even know the question to like understand because I don't know anything about how that works in that arena, but everyone always tells me um, it's it's very, very difficult to have any basis of like open IP because people like we were talking about earlier just wants to, wants to silo that so extremely. That's because, so because everybody wants everything up front and they want mm. it tomorrow and they want to, then they don't want to, it's proprietary and, if, and it's competitive. It comes back to, the root of, of competition where you want to hide basic information like, you know, the human genome, you know, I mean, everything that isn't known that becomes known the first time the first person knows it, they are the only person to know it. Therefore they are in a position of some value, you know, relative to the other people. The problem is, is they overvalue the thing that they have and they hold on to it and, until it's obvious that you know it's worthless or whatever so we need to open source sort of flips the model on its head and it says the end is when when you actually uh, it's licensing generally i mean it's it's a licensing model 
um, when when there's a product, you know, this is why it doesn't fit necessarily in the VC uh, sort of world, is that you get paid when there's a product that's sold mm. and a customer is served. That that's open source. So when you when something you can use open source, you can put the open source tools together and you can actually benefit somebody. And that's the licensing model. So you better have a have an application that's actually somebody's buying and paying for. Whereas here you have investors, it's just a big casino, you know, betting on whatever kind of technology they want and hanging out together and having dinner together and talking about it's it's a lot of it is the social networking aspect. Um, but open source really lets information be free. And it's not, you don't make money by virtue of the fact that you're hiding something. You don't, you don't put yourself in a position of, of control by hiding the data. You actually put yourself in a position of vulnerability, at least if you're trying to hold on to the data for its own sake, or not data, but for the algorithms or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. The person who's open source knows <clears throat> that there's more value in accomplishing the goal of the open source than there is in making money off of the execution of accomplishing the value. So we shouldn't be making money off of health technology development. We should be making money off of health technology sales that actually does stuff. So all of the little pieces and tools and infrastructure, which each on their own can be a critical core component of that process, but they're not in and of themselves a marketable, you know, tangible thing. That's why all of these scores, you know, aging scores and biological scores, all of this stuff, these is, and they're rapidly evolving too. So they're being replaced. So people who think that they have anything proprietary to hold on to that's going to be worth anything are going to be sadly disappointed when they find out that, you know, somebody just leapfrogged them and quantum leveled them, you know, with, with something else. And with computers, it's entirely possible. Everybody's still thinking old school that, you know, as long as they can hide this information they've got, you know, long enough, you know, they'll have time to make a billion dollars, but no, they don't. So as soon as, if you have an idea, you, you're better off letting it go and moving on to the next idea as quickly as possible, rather than trying to spend 10, 12 years, you know, trying to turn this idea into, into a moneymaker because somebody's going to come up with something better faster, especially now that we have computers and tools that can help us evolve these things quickly. How does, um, how does that impact your approach then if people are just going to keep moving on to ideas and they won't like, so, have but, a product then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you sell, you sell products, you sell diagnostics. Yeah. There is money to be made in serving yeah. people in serving yeah. customers. I have, I have customers. I have a tangible bricks and mortar organization. I uh, invoice people, you know, and I look after them. I'm a retail person. I, I, that's why I understand the customer. I'm not divorced from that, the real okay. reason why we, why we exist. We can make money. It's just, what do I want out of my life? Do I want to be the king? Do I, <laughs> this is the ego part of it. I have a huge ego, but I want to live forever. That's a little bit ambitious, I think. And, or I want to live as long as I want to live. I should, I should qualify that. I, I don't, forever is, doesn't exist. <clears throat> but, you know, there is, and we can work, if we find other people who want the end goal, which is minimizing time, you know, those interventions, I want the interventions and I want them as fast as possible. And I know that if I hoard 
the information that I need that somebody else could use to get us to those interventions faster. That is my fault. So I'm not, I, I want interventions. When you think about it, it's teleological. It's incredibly important to remember that the motivation of why you're doing what you're doing, because that why is what you're going to get. If you want money, you're going to get, that's what you're going to build the machine to do, to make money. If you want CDs and publications, boy, it's all, all the infrastructure is going to be there to help produce papers. I want interventions. And I look at how do we do that? And it's the same, it's just the same iterative sort of technological development cycle, but driven by a different intent. It's, it's the intent to which all of the machinery is developed and put to and is it actually, and then reward it. You know, then the rewards, the feed, it's all positive and negative feedback loops. Do the right, do, if the behavior is, is, if the result is what you like, reward it. And um, too much now, the behavior we want is just more money in our, in our, they don't think any further than, you know, these sorts of, frankly, lower order issues, lower order kind of issues or considerations. Yeah, but, I think um, they're, like startups and like early stage VCs would like what you're building because they don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of the data set. They can just make the product. Yeah. Um, there's a, a, a friend of mine who I won't name because I don't know if I'm allowed to name things. Uh, I gave them that idea and they're like, they're then sharing their data with other startups and it makes their startup worth more. So then they get a better valuation. That's, it, that, 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 that's exactly, you know, and more power to them. I'm not in competition yeah. with them. I don't oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I was just no, saying it was a, it's another yeah, one. Yeah. I, I agree, but I know that that's not the case. But a lot of people think that just because there's an ego involved too. You know, you, you mm. know, I'm getting fulfillment in my life out of moving in this direction because I see this particular gap that needs filled. And I'm getting, I'm giving my own kudos and pats on the back to myself for being so smart and, you know, working at this thing that nobody else kind of properly sees and, you know, I'm smarter than everybody and more intelligent than everybody. It's so these these narratives that are the child of uh, ego plays. It's not that I really think those, but it, I, there's a tendency to do those to do that. So I would love I would love it if um, anybody who understands that we have a basic infrastructure that we have to develop a language for handling and sharing biological health information such that it's seamless when we want to share, we can share. When we pool, the data can come together in a statistically meaningful manner so that we can query it properly and not just get garbage out of it. So the point, yeah. it always comes down to the measurement actually and the accuracy of that measurement. Whatever it is that you're measuring and you should have a number or, or something and a, and a level of the accuracy of that measurement. And once you, if you have all that information, just those pieces of information, then you should be able to, to create queries uh, in a multi-dimensional way, which would be very useful. Um, yeah, no, open source, this is, it is really the, it's not because I don't like money and I don't like startups. I really love business and I love the strat strategizing and, and how to solve the problem. Um, I just don't want to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I can open up other businesses. I don't know if health technology is an appropriate entrepreneurial kind of outlet mm -hmm. is um how do you know like what all data do you collect and how do we know that that's the right data to collect well I mean, that's a priori 
there is no you cannot really say that the the the, tra- the value of the data is always relative and it's always changing and it depends on the okay. question you can ask but the the thing that you need to uh have is accurate data <laughs> let's get some good data first <laughs> and um then we can look for patterns within the data for particular questions and then you know for pre- so the type of data, the amount of data, the size of the data set, all of this, it all depends on the question that's being asked. If the question that's being asked is, um, you know, how do we reduce the amount of accumulation of cross-linking in the thing? So that's a very specific question. It's got specific targets, specific biomarkers. And does the data that we're collecting contain that information? You know, so we have to... That for me, I just uh, my question is: What are the biomarkers different? What are the differences between biomarkers between healthy individuals, uh, young individuals, and old individuals? Healthy, young, and old. Get, you know, the you know, without having overt disease. You know, get as close to old age as possible. You don't have any chronic conditions. All of your biomarkers are still within the norm of the reference ranges. But still, what is the difference between these populations? And how do you get that older population to look more like the younger population? And you need a lot of data for that. And often you don't know what you don't know. So you so yeah. you me- so you measure as un- in an unbiased way, um, and then you start off with the bigger with the biggest net possible to get as much data as possible and collect it consistently, and then you can find um, patterns like the plasmalogen story that came out of the prodrome sciences uh, study with David Bennett, as I was referring to before, uh, plasmalogens became, you know, was one of the most important markers for extreme longevity, but yet it's one of the things that nobody really yet knows, you know, it's, and yet it's uh, all the literature is there, correlations of plasmalogens levels with extreme longevity is well known. But the problem is, is that you can't, nobody, there wasn't an exogenous source of plasma, there was no way to manipulate the levels yeah, internally. You, you couldn't eat it. It's destroyed by your digestion. So all everything, all the evidence we had was just correlative. Uh, and so how do we know whether or not taking plasmalogen supplements or elevating plasmalogen levels in somebody who's got uh, old would help? And so now yeah. we're on that. But that took a long time just to, you know, I mean, it took four years to just identify plasmalogen as the marker after the measurement of actually. So once you have this information, it's just that long. And it was just realizing that if things take that long, my, my goose is cooked personally. I'm not going to make it. I've already had cancer, you know, already had one strikeout, you know, it's, it's, uh, time is, time is the most important thing again. So how do we at rapidly iterate uh, and create, and it's going to not be uh, any magic. There's not not any magic to it. It's just grunt work, basically. Uh, a lot of people measuring data. Uh, the Chinese, uh, China is doing a great job uh, in that. In order to at a, con- a concert, they they will get all of the people who attend the concert. It's bitten through a tube. So they want gen- genomics on the Chinese population. The Chinese government just goes and says, "Okay, bit into the tube," and they do all this. Gen- genomics uh why aren't we doing something similar for multiomics for for everything you know because there's no corporate incentive and the academics are all interested in their own personal passions yeah 
I don't know to the extent the average average person will start thinking there's like chips in it or something. Uh, like with COVID, I don't know if you remember that. Uh, when I got the shot, I uh, kept saying that I want to build, uh, buy Microsoft stock now out of nowhere. Uh, yeah. Sometimes people wouldn't tell I was joking, but which is, to, you know, anyone out there who had concerns, I'm hopefully you spoke to someone who had those concerns alleviated. <laughs> I'm curious, is there anything pre or, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> is there any, anything pre or currently in testing that you're excited about other than what we just talked about? It was like a lay of the land. Uh, well, I think, I think the, so aging is a combination of lack of regeneration and, and too much destruction. So we are, have a really good homeostatic balance while we're growing, obviously, and we get to adult body plan size. And then, then gravity takes over <laughs> after we're thought out of a rocket for a rocket. And then we hit our apogee and then we start to decline uh, with entropy. If there was some way that at that peak, we could maintain our informational integrity. In other words, the repair systems keep things together. We could probably float quite a bit. We could increase the arc quite a bit. We may not make it to, you know, longevity escape velocity or whatever, but at least we could tread water a little bit longer and, and still enjoy life. Uh, we don't know actually how far we can push our own repair systems, our own regenerative systems. So one of the top, uh, one of the really important uh, topics is uh, Altos uh, company Jeff Bezos, these uh, transient uh, RNA uh, expression of the Aminac factors with the reversal of age-related phenotypes and epigenetics um, and function, uh, actual function phenotypes. That for, to me is uh, proof positive that we should be able to do something like that in humans. And how do we do that? Well, does it require a $2 billion in watching someone else like Jeff Bezos do it and take control of it? Or, you know, and then paying through the nose in another 25 or 30 years before we actually, the general public or anybody else other than a billionaire gets access to it? It's, it's um, yeah, I'm very excited about that. I, luckily, there it isn't that difficult to do. And the only thing protecting these basic, right? these these are the, like the hype of the technology right now. But you know, next year or two or three years from now, they will become mundane. And um, these even the people developing these things and trying to invest in them uh, don't realize how fast things are changing. Uh, but that's a good thing. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't invest uh, mm. today. Yeah. So. I'm all for Altos and, you know, let's go for it. I, I think they're doing, uh, they're in an area that's really good. There are other companies which are following, you know, sort of the same paradigm. I believe we will be able to harness the capacity of the body to regenerate and we'll be able to stimulate regeneration, even in older individuals, sort of arena convoy. Uh, and uh, the convoy lab have been saying that for many, many years. Um, when you're old, it doesn't mean, and your body's having problems, it doesn't mean it's incapable of, you know, doing better. And in fact, the fact that an old person or can, an old man, at least with a relatively old woman, can have a perfectly healthy, youthful child, you know, just tells us that everything is up for grabs. It's just a matter of uh, people want instantaneous uh, yeah. reversal of age. <laughs> But we don't get old that fast. <laughs> mm -hmm. It takes a long I'm, time to get old. 
And I think it could, we, we might be looking at uh, approaches that reverse aging in at least the same length of time. It might take even longer. So patience, I think, is going to be important. Mm. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the thesis or on the current work of some of the people I'm about to read. Starting with uh, Aubrey Gray, you mentioned his 15 years of 50 chance of love. You know, what do you think of it? And then um, I just like Gerald, like sense of it. Well, I'll be, no, being I know, I, I know Aubrey rather well. Um, I don't talk a lot anymore, but, um, but I still subscribe to the idea of the uh, robust pulse rejuvenation. It was one of the things that I worked on with him very, very early on, one of the early concepts when I was the executive director of the Methuselah Mouse Prize or the Methuselah Foundation. But um, for me, mice are not people, I think. It's just, a, and I think, again, if for, it's time for me is the most important thing. If we have to do something in mice and then replicate it in humans, I think it's if when I would prefer to look at what can we do that would achieve something similar. Because the goal of, I think, robust mouse, robust mouse rejuvenation is to give the industry an incentive to and to change the minds, right? Is to ch sort of change the way people look at aging as being malleable. And if we can do it in mice, we should be able to do it in people. Given what I've seen of survival instincts, it's just monkey brain, not, not very intelligent behavior. I don't know if, you know, anything. I don't know if anything actually, it's sort of like, don't, don't look up again. It's just like, there's an asteroid coming to the planet, you know, it's going to crash into, and, and, and some people, they just don't care. They just don't care. And I think the majority of people, unless it, they just don't think it personally impacts them until somebody, until it's actually in your face, you know, just like cancer was for me, you know, it was in my face. It, it altered the way I, I saw things. And that is how I think people behave, learn and behave. So I don't think robust mouse rejuvenation will achieve or would achieve what Aubrey hopes it would. But, you know, I think it would change an awful lot of minds. It may catch an awful lot of attention and it that eventually may result in that. But it's I don't think the public are going to be that fascinated by a mouse that lives much very long. Isn't the process we're supposed to do with animal models then do it in humans so that there isn't like adverse effects? Well, I mean, but that's, I guess if you're, it depends, well, this is, that depends on if you think that mitochondrial allotopic expression, et cetera, et cetera, are things that, I, I think that we need to do stuff that's low hanging fruit now because I'm personally a customer for it. I'm not personally a customer for mitochondrial allotopic expression. Mm. I want to do things that will impact my health today to keep me healthy long enough to take advantage of the things that are going to come along later. So I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not worth working on. I think that in the long term, but I think there's an awful lot we can do in the space of health maximal maximization that will teach us what are the things that are modifiable and what are the true, you know, targets okay. of, of uh, those. It's sort of like, let's let the tide go up. Let's look after all the things that we can look after. And the only things left to emerge will be the appropriate, um, you know, targets that we need extra technologies for but but that, that will, like altos and mrna uh, this expression so these are all i see them as a steps so i'm going to do everything i can today with what is available today to me 
to do that. And there's some really simple stuff. And mass spec is just nutritional based. I mean, people are wandering around low in omega-3s and, you know, low on their plasmalogens. They don't have good choline levels. There's a whole bunch of really important metabolites, uh, building basic building blocks, which if you are deficient in for long periods of time, your body starts making choices. It's sort of like building a house. And if you're building a wall and it calls for two by sixes, but you don't have two by sixes and you have two by fours, well, your body's going to put in the two by fours and then you're going to have a wall that's just not as strong as it should be. And it's the same thing with all of the choices your body is making. If you're not optimally nutrition, you are actually causing a lot of the problems with ignorance that you could. So that's what we can do today um, is, is modify our diets and lifestyles to really put ourselves in the best position possible. And then we will know an awful lot more about, you know, the other types of technologies. It sounds uh, similar to Harold Katchner from saying this last name, right? Uh, the quote is the cell age is determined by its cellular environment versus uh, something uh, more deep than that. I was just, I was going to ask you about his, his work and what you thought of it, but it sounds like you and him have a similar thought process. I think so for sure. You know, and I think one thing we tend to forget is that we are, our environment is us. It's, it doesn't, our bodies don't end where our skin ends. You know, there's there we are part of this living system, which is a community and, and people, but people tend to just define, you know, their system, their biological system as everything that's happens under their skin, but not really. And that it's, it's we are we are a very complicated system and uh, we focus on some of the things we, we can focus on, but there's an awful lot more going on. And Her- and Harold is. Uh, yeah. But. I think we agree on, on many points. Yeah. What do you, um, and I've recently in the last like couple months come to this guy's work and I've been having so much fun reading all of it, but his name is Michael Levin and he's about, uh, morphogenesis and bioelectricity. He has really interesting stuff that he's been working on. And, um, I'm just curious what your thoughts on it as it relates to aging or just uh, general. Well, I mean, I know it's, it almost gets, when you talk about electricity and, you know, magnetism you're talking about almost metaphysical kinds of things you almost because they are not you know matter they're not you know they're they're actually the forces the photons and whatever that go in between so they do have some mass but they're not really real um so to speak um but michael levin's work is i was looking at there's you know where you look at axolotl limb regeneration uh there's some work that's early work that was done before and if you cut an axolotl's limb off it will regrow everybody kind of knows that if you take the motor neuron from the that would innervate the limb and you make if you make a cut in the side of the axolotl and you take it'll grow back if you take the motor neuron and you attach it to the cut it will grow a limb there so there is something about the supply of the electrical impulses from the motor neuron that tells the cells that you cut that they have to change their regenerative body plan, their regenerative plan from skin to actually creating a limb, which just blew my mind. And then I started looking at the biophysics of, um, of fields as in mm-hmm. embryon, embryogenesis and embryonic development. 
And you can see that even before the molecules arrange themselves, that there's a field that is advancing almost in front. It's leading the development. So we don't know what is happening, but it's it, it's almost as if the elect it's the pattern of electrical charges that are creating fields and the conductance. Then the molecules, the biological molecules, come in. So we haven't really even touched. We, it's so hard to measure that sort of thing, and I don't think everybody anybody's been. It's a little too woo woo for a lot of scientists to think that you know, that this is so important and probably fundamental to life, maybe even existence, you know, at all, because this stuff is happening, you know, automatically. And maybe biology follows, you know, mm-hmm. electricity and magnetism rather than the other way around. It was interesting. One of his talks, they uh, stimulated a part of, I think it was a frog embryo to like grow an egg on its its spine. And the, and the eye connected to the spine and the frog could see from it. It was just like, oh, a sensory input. It's like, that's wild. This is like witchcraft. It was so cool. It's uh, like yeah, a, I'm, I'm, very, flex, very flexible uh, toolkit life has. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, crazy. You know, yeah. I, it is. It's, it's these kinds of holy F moments, you know, when you, when you see stuff like that, it just like, well, it's it's incredible. It's like you see you're getting a peek into something that is foreign and not in our not easy in our experience to to really understand. But once you get it, it kind of opens up a whole possible new way of interpreting things that we didn't understand that maybe they can start becoming more clear with this new this new way of thinking. Mm-hmm. There's a a paper that he wrote on uh, bioelectricity and cancer. I was I'm reading after this uh, call actually. And I, I thought it'd be really interesting because the, like 200 years ago, we we leached a president to death, and we thought that was tech, you know, we were doing the right thing there, and so now we do chemicals and all these <laughs> harsh things. I just wonder <laughs> if there's going to come a point where we like just have to like put an electrode in there and it just like give it a signal to shut off and kill itself at a certain rate so it doesn't like overwhelm our system and kill non, us. Non-invasive, non-invasive, yes, non-invasive is going to be. Once we know, so I'm currently, I mean, it's a lot easier to destroy things than it is to create mm-hmm. things. But, you know, right now I'm, uh, there's a new ultrasound uh, type of device, which is able to break up scar tissue. And so, and that's without cutting. Then there's the infrared light, which stimulates mitochondrial function, and uh, uh, which is red light therapy, which is being shown to be beneficial. And actually it's even being shown to be beneficial or caps people were wearing through their skulls for some reason. So there's, and then there's also transcranial magnetic stimulation and uh, radio focusing, radio uh, laser uh, focusing of radio waves. And a lot of this is easier right now to just burn things and, and break things up. And But once we get to figure out, like there is got to be some, re- there are resonances within these molecules. So when you, uh, they can regrow bone in your t- and hmm. uh, in your jaw with a particular frequency, and there are new there are some ultrasound systems which can stimulate stem cells at a particular frequency uh, to oh, help really? heal hard to heal bones. And so there are machines that we already know that these are important non-invasive uh, radiation, not necessarily radiation, but uh, photon waves or sound waves or these sorts of things 
that our biology responds to these types of things. Not necessarily drugs, you know, maybe, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe. So finding out what those resonance frequencies are, which the, you know, receptor channels for calcium and magnesium on a particular, you know, and then target that sort of laser, you know, radio wave laser to a particular tissue, particular spot, you might be able to just trigger apoptosis, but we got to learn where are the buttons, where are the switches at that biochemical level and what do they respond to? Who's doing that work? I don't think anybody is, but I think it's a viable hypothesis. I think Michael Levine would be certain or sure be able to tell us who in a small group of researchers on the planet are, are doing that kind of work. I think he's probably being seminally instigating an entire revolution in this, uh, in this work. I don't know of anybody else who's been doing anything like it. Yeah. Well, it, when I was reading about axolotls and like people trying to implement, uh, replicate the features in humans, it's always like, can we do genetic engineering on a human to give ourselves a similar function? It's like, well, why can't we just create like the structure and figure out like what chemically is going on or like what's going on and like regrow it. Like we put our, like a hand in a vat and it just like slowly gives the environment where it regrows. And so it just, it feels uh, like intuitively what would feel, feel right versus like having to do something really complicated, which is like, you know, affecting the DNA of a bunch, like a billion of different things, like in a, in a hand, uh, just like at, an environment at, where the 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 day, though, at the end of the day, given a bionic indestructible hand or a fleshy injury prone hand, I want the fleshy one. You want the fleshy one? Yeah, I want my hand back if I don't have a hand. God, no. <laughs> Everything. I this is and this is all. I, I mean, after you've been through cancer maybe a few times or what? You know, our bodies are barely. You know, I mean, they're pretty durable, but they're not meant to last. And you know, I would prefer something a little more durable, or maybe a little more flexible, a little more a little more attachments, a few more accessories. You know, mm. I, I don't, I'm not so married, like a bionic band. I'm not married. Yeah. I'm not married to this biology at all. I just know that I have to keep it running long enough to, uh, to, to be able to see the, the real, the replacement stuff going along. But I do think it's going to be a race between mapping, you know, uploading your brain into, you know, can we replicate our identities within a different substrate and the philosophical questions of whether or not such a copy would be you is really irrelevant to me. Um, because as long as it thinks it's me, I'm, I'm quite okay with that. And I think we'll have that technology uh, maybe sooner than, than we think, than we are able to actually extend life. I think before I turn 80, I think in the next 10 years, we're going to see human level intelligence and computers and then finding a way to map our human level sort of human and in there might already be there, you know, Elon Musk and various other things. I was working with a researcher at the University of Alberta who had developed the, unfortunately died before he could finish his work, but he developed the nanotransistors, which were capable of both stimulating neurons. They would attach themselves permanently to neurons and they would receive a signal and cause an action potential. And if there was an action potential, they would send out a signal. So every neuron would have be IP addressable. And you could see the, uh, you could map the network activity of your neurons in real time in what you were experiencing, record them and then have it played back. Uh, it's much easier to see that being done now than curing aging. 
frankly. It's because it's neurons can be stimulated and wireless signals can be sent. And uh, once you're able to record and replay the actual living experience of the activity in a person's brain, that's really all that the body's meant to do is, is have that thing that thinks it's you, you know, able to, able to be conscious. And um, that may be possible to do, to actually bring consciousness up into, to maybe able to invent consciousness than it is to cure aging. Hmm. Have you ever seen the movie, The Prestige? I did. Yeah, that was a pretty, I've seen it twice. And you know what? I'm going to watch it a third time because the second time I watched it, I barely rec- remembered it because I started seeing so many different things. And yeah, he had fun I, in that movie. Yeah, that I didn't see in the first one. But that was with Michael, uh, oh, the older actor. He's he was Batman. Alive. Batman yeah. and then Hugh Jackman, right? Yeah. yeah well, yeah. in the end, we find, this isn't a spoiler for you because you've seen it, but <laughs> the in the end, we find out that like every day, he would drown one of himself and the other one would teleport up there and he never knew which one was going to die and which one was going to live. And so with these things is, yeah, isn't it, um, even if they can, you can make another AI copy of yourself, like this version is going to die. Doesn't that, doesn't that bother you or wouldn't that bother you? Like as long as it's like one version of you. Yeah. Well, I think it's, does our genome care that it's dying and as we're propagating it, through our children, you know, I think it's the, it would be the same thing. It would be sort of I I I came into being. If I was the clone, I would or if I would I came into being as a result of this biological entity's interest in my coming into being. So it would be almost be like a parent-child kind of relationship, and you yeah. would be sorry to see your parent die. But this is the way of all flesh. There is no there's no getting out of it unless we can find ways of keeping this homeostatic balance going forever. And even then you're much, you're still vulnerable to all sorts of, you know, problems, uh, mechanical problems. So philosophically, I just know that I exist and I am, you know, looking through this. And as long as some aspect of that continues, I'm, I would be okay with that. You know, mm. personally, if I, somebody that thought it was me lived on in a computer, I'd say, okay, hasta la vista. I'm, I'm, I'm like, what, what was that uh, one ring with the elves, held it, elves heading off to the West Shore or something like that, jumping. To the Undying Lands? Yeah, exactly. So I'll, I'll, I'll willingly jump on the boat. I faced death and can- with cancer. I'm not worried about dying. I'm mm. pretty sure that we are pretty ignorant about what reality is. I have, don't think we really have a clue. I'm, I'm not, a, certainly not an atheist. I'm absolutely 100% not religious, but I'm a scientist and what I do know is that we know nothing about what's really going on. And, you know, this is all ent- not entertainment, but I look at life more almost like a Monty Python play now, especially now especially after seeing the world unvarnished and the crazies howling at the moon and the rest of the smart people kind of going, oh my God, we're going down with the ship with the, with the, with these people. It's, um, I'm having, I'm having a time of my life and it's very freeing when you're not, when you're not worried 
that worried about it. I just I just want to see suffering reduced. I don't think that the the experience that of, of life should be primitive and rude and crude. I think we should be elevated and we should be working towards creative creativity, you know, helping each other create a better world rather than tear it down. But you know, yin and yang. There's going to be I realize that this is true. Your evil exists, good exists. You know, I just happen to be a little less evil. Mm -hmm. So I know we're going over our time. I have like three questions left, but if we need well, a cap, I can, I can, I don't worry. I don't need to cap. I, I can go for a little while longer. Yeah. I'm okay. Sorry. I appreciate it's that. Part, it's partially my fault too. I, I told you you couldn't cut me out. <laughs> well, I enjoy listening. Um, mm -hmm. So the, uh, a quick one, uh, the, the, the next tour, uh, I think the next Two, yeah, the next two are from listeners. Uh, one person was asking, uh, will you have like an internship program for the summer? I think it sounds like they're in a PhD or a master's program and they're just looking for ways to be involved in longevity. I've, I've done this. Uh, I've, had, I've taken on interns before. Um, for me, the intern would have to be very special because, um, and I know that there are out, they are out there. So, just if somebody is is pumped about what I'm doing and we talk and they're even more pumped and they want to work for free, come on over. Happy to happy to have you. And what the best way would just be like info the, the links on the email, website. Yeah, just info at the, at the mail on the website. Get in touch with me personally through LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever. You know, I'm I'm pretty open and available to for people to contact me if they'd like. And then. Uh, what are your thoughts on medical mushrooms like cordyceps and lion's mane? Um, I know lion's mane. I've not heard of cordyceps before. I grew a lion's mane, so I probably should know what it is. Yeah, I the funguses are something which I have not dug into <laughs> a lot. Um, the most thing I can do is just be so appreciative of mm -hmm. the fact that they've been around longer than you carry it most most uh, multicellular life. Yeah, and they're really so closely related to us. Yeah, they're clear. Yeah. And so there's an awful lot about them, which I think would be very, which we don't know. So mushrooms, I think, are probably very good. But, you know, I, I love mushrooms. You know, I, for eating? For eating. Not medicinal. I think, yeah, I think lion's mane, I've heard, has been, you know, has been, is quite effective. I'm, you know, that's a really good big gap in my, in my knowledge that maybe one day I'll have some time to dig into. Yeah, I, I, I've grown lion's mane, but for some reason, I just never ate it. I just liked growing it, and then I learned how much it costs, and then I feel really bad for not eating it. But uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, Well, I, I've eaten it before, but I didn't like it. I didn't like the texture. Mm. Yeah. I thought it was supposed to taste like lobster or something. It doesn't taste yeah, like that? Yeah, that's probably why I don't like it. Okay. I, lobster used it. to be prison food, like something that even prisoners would want to eat. <laughs> Down at the bottom, <laughs> bottom feeders. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is a David Sinclair quote. Only 20% of our longevity is genetically determined. The rest is what we do, how we live our lives, and increase some... God, I'm like almost joking. <laughs> how we live our lives. Everyone listening, I, I'm trying, man. I, I have had the flu. The, uh, Kevin has been very forgiving. Like, I'm a pro uh, how, So restate, the rest is what we do, how we live our lives, and increasingly the molecules that we take. So the, the question is, and I think we've talked about this, uh, is like the undercurrent is like things that we can do today to improve our longevity and health span. And so I was just curious, what are some of the things that you're doing, you know, um, 
to maximize those things, not like the an intervention per se, but just like your health, yeah. like exercise, nutrition. Well, the first thing is <laughs> the first thing. I mean, I always, I've always said, if people did everything their grandmother told them to do, they would be well ahead of the game. Hmm. Get your exercise. It's the most important thing that you could be doing. The absolute single most important thing you can be doing beyond food, beyond supplements. The next thing is sleep, because although exercise is good for you, it's actually not. It's the recovery from the exercise that is good. And you recover from the exercise when you sleep. So exercise is really good if you can recover from it, because exercise is a stress. It's actually hurting your body. So mm. people do, don't separate the two phases. They, they lump them all together and they forget that it's the recovery that's most important. So stressing your body out off of this homeostatic balance in with temperature, cryogenics, you know, or whatever, cryotherapy, hot sauna, you know, all sorts of exercise, physical, manual exercise, hypoxia, hyperbaric, you know, anytime you're taking your system, which is very happy with the status quo and you push it off of its center and then you force it, you stretch it and then you force it to get back. It, you know, it snaps back and it goes, oh, holy shit. And then it starts making itself stronger and more resilient. Mm. It's like an adaptation. Uh, so that it can withstand the next the next uh, time. It's assuming that there will be a next time. So doing all sorts of things to keep your body sort of off balance and uncomfortable. And that is the last thing most people want to do. They want to be comfortable. They want to be, you know. So this is how can we pre-program our brain to like discomfort? That That is something, so meditation, cognitive therapies, these sorts of things. Um, occasionally, you know, mood altering substances might actually go a long ways to helping a bad, you know, sort of not comfortable experience become more comfortable. And that's something that, you know, some people can, can do, but stuff that is healthy for you, or at least uh, not unhealthy. Um, food, you know, you got everybody going off their gourd about ketogenesis and whatever caloric restriction and everybody's got their favorite kind of thing and some people stick with it and they find out that they're actually more sick on their diet than they thought mm. so variety diversity uh the one thing is stay away from insulin spikes you know stay away from sugar it's the white death if insulin or i should say if sugar was a discovered today it would have to go through fda approval and it's yes, intense it's killing people every day by the millions almost it's incredible and there's the sugar industry happy as a clam let's not you know don't ruffle the waters they're they're more evil than the tobacco industry because they're it's doing, in everything too it's in ev absolutely everything so sugar whatever you can to limit or eliminate it from your especially added sugars gone um i tried doing I, that hmm? oh, sorry I, I tried eliminating sugars from my diet and literally on like a can of tomato soup, like a full yeah. can of tomato soup has like 200 grams of sugar. It's like, how do yeah. you even get that all in there? It's like uh, yeah. everything. It's, it's yeah. really egregious how much is in everything. It's, it's yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's been, yeah. And the fact that our food pyramid is designed by the corporations 
mm-hmm. is actually in with, with, with the, the lobby too. of the pol- politicians. I mean, we were all at the mercy of this stuff. And once you see the the way things are really working, it's hard to trust anybody anymore at that at those levels um, that they actually have anyone's best interests in mind other than the people who are running the show pretty much. So anyway, so diet, sleep, exercise, social connection, if you're the type of person who thrives on it, and uh, I sort of go back and forth uh, that I, I need to uh, I need to recover from, from social connection, but I certainly enjoy it. It uh, pushes me off of my balance and challenges me. And then, and I learn a lot. And uh, you, you don't learn a lot unless you are actually talking to other people. So if you want to live in your own little insular world, world and, you know, look in a hall of infinite mirrors with your face on it, then, you know, stay at home. But uh, get out and enjoy life. And um, that's why we're here. That's what we're trying to continue on is this, the, the experience of, of doing the right things. Um, yeah, so I take a whole bunch of supplements now. I never used to. I also wear a wearable, a, a, a whoop, whoop band. I hated wearables before that. Uh, they always would get caught or they were funky. I, I didn't, I don't even like wearing rings because I tend to, they tend to get caught on stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But I've been now, I'm addicted to my whoop band because it tells me how good my sleep was, even though I know how good my sleep was. But it's yeah. nice to get those metrics in the, gra- in the graphs. Also, I'm able to now download that data and import it into my Open Cures profile, and I can match it up with the different other events which are occurring in my life. So it's kind of interesting to see my biomarkers uh, going up and going down according to sleep, you know. Um, yeah, so wearables and supplements, but usually only supplement if you know you actually need it. You know, uh, there's supplements. Some, anybody over 50 should be taking mitochondrial support you know, supplements of some sort, you know, acetyl-L-carnitine and these kinds of other th- other things, uh, especially if they're feeling kind of tired and lack of energy. Uh, that's probably a good, a good indication that their mitochondria and their neurons are not, you know, being as efficient as they might want to be. And, and you can actually improve that efficiency through supplementation. For how long will that last, you know, before, you know, the inevitable goes on? I don't know, but I anecdotally, uh, no, not even anecdotal. I mean, we need to be able to have these functional tests to show definitively that, you know, these supplements are improving our cognition, they're improving our reaction time. And, you know, these are the things which can confirm what I know to be is that I feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel better. I don't need a nap in the middle of the afternoon, you know, uh, which is pretty common before I started taking supplements. And I'm just, yeah. So those are the things that I do do. Um, I also, when I have an opportunity, will volunteer for clinical trials uh, that have, you know, like the growth hormone thyroid, uh, immuno, immuno, uh, regenerating my thymus gland uh, was one of the things that I did uh, with Greg, Greg Faye's uh, grim trial. Um, yeah, so just that's what I'm swimming in. It's just fine. You know, I don't know. Try, try to, to take advantage of all the technologies and uh, the networking and the connections. Be educated and be curious and or, you know, continue to learn and don't ever take what somebody says as being the be all and end all. You can get excited about it, but boy, I've seen an awful lot of things to get excited about over the past 20 years. 
and they become either mundane or yesterday's news, or they never turn into anything, or they're still actually unsolved. You know, they're still a mystery. NAD, you know, or rapamycin, you know, I mean, this is like 2007, 2008, and there's still not properly just, you know, studied in humans. You know, it's, this, this was the real depressing thing for me. It was looking at rapamycin. I was talking with, um, uh, oh, goodness. Who was the director of the NIA at the time? Philippe Sierra. So we were in Tahoe at a conference and he had just taken over the position of director of the NIA and we were sharing a condo. And uh, he was, of course, asking, how can we get more funding into aging research? And I sat and I thought about it and I said, well, this rapamycin thing, you know, that max that increases the maximum lifespan of mice for the first time in human history, isn't that a pretty big deal? Didn't this be like a poster child for aging research and you guys could be able to take out and shake the pom-poms and, you know, get, mm -hmm. get a lot more people excited and interested? And he goes, yeah, but they never did capitalize on it. They never did. It's, and, it's, and it's the natural propensity for aging researchers and scientists in general to not want to be associated with pseudoscience. Really, it's yeah. this risk aversion very dangerous. caused very dangerous. the delay in showing the rapamycin, and it's the lack of patentability of rapamycin which prevented the corporate environment from taking advantage of it. So here it is, one of the most promising things for human longevity ever discovered in human history, sitting there like a volleyball in the middle of the court that nobody wants to pick up because they're afraid but yet there's, it's just, you know, that blew my mind that this, this was where it was at when it mm -hmm. was given to them on a freaking silver platter. And it, they just turned their nose up at it for all sorts of stupid reasons. And uh, so we're going to be uh, entering an era, I think, where we need to rapidly put things together and take advantage and find out that, you know, test things on rapamycin, metformin, all of these other possibilities now should be tested. And the people who are already taking these things off label, we need to create ad hoc community sponsored clinical trial groups where we measure our results. We measure the impact of taking these longevity drugs on our own selves and in the same way as everybody else. And then uh, and, uh, Keith Camito is very big on, he's at lifespan.io and he's really one of the big proponents of community sponsored clinical trials using, you know, just individuals crowdsourcing because there's no reason without, without um, our suffering, there is no need to develop a medical therapy. No need. If nobody suffered, there'd be no market. So, Without, but without our data, they cannot develop any therapies. So the, the sooner that the people who need the therapies use their data to help reward or create, you know, positive feedback loops, the better we will be. And that is going to happen. And it's going to happen sooner than we think that people are going to be able to aggregate their data together and create a data marketplace, you know, like a stock exchange. There'll be data sets of Parkinson's patients who are, you know, out there measuring their own cells. They're measuring their health every day. Why the hell shouldn't they? You know, mm -hmm. why should they not be afforded the scientific tools, the ability to measure their health, the scientific tools, and collect their own data and then make their data available as a group to the highest bidder? 
There should be no, we are, you are a data generator. You are a data generator. I'm a data generator. Together, we form a small group of two. Let's just do, you know, the, the problem is, is that all of these monopolies exist on the equipment and the expertise and the normal people are just passive, you know, supplicants to the altar of biotech and, and we are not involved. We, we, our duty is to die. That's, that's really what it is. I am yeah, totally fed up with the system. So I hope a lot of other people are too. And I think they are. Uh, I'm not the only one trying to advocate for empowerment of individuals. Uh, you would think in the libertarian community that this would be right up their alley. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of discussion as to how do we maintain privacy? How do we keep our data and hold on to our data and get the value of our data that everybody's been feeding off of for free for, for quite too long? Mm -hmm. <coughs> Actually, um, related to one of the things you were just talking about, rapamycin sorry when it's written down i have like mild dyslexia but um one of one of my uh listeners asked if um he could guess on its effectiveness and dosage and frequency of the impact so basically it's like is it as big? it sounds like it's a pretty big deal i don't take anything it is a big deal, so it is a big deal. But it, there is a ton of information on its dosing available now mm. but you know it to i think you know, you can probably go to Matt Caberline's, uh, you know, Matt Caberline with his website with the dog, uh, dog rapid trials. Um, you know, Pfizer, you know, it was prescribed. I think people tried a whole bunch of different doses. I think two and a half milligrams every second day, you know, kind of thing is, but it really is, we should wait for Ageless RX, which is a telemedicine company, uh, and they are, prescribe longevity uh, drugs, metformin and things to the public through the online uh, and online. They not only are interested in, in helping sustaining themselves and making a profit, but they're also interested in giving back to the research community. So they are running a rapamycin clinical trial with before and after with some of the people who buy the product from them off-label online for longevity purposes. So I would wait for their study. I actually do, I, I'm working with them and I help Open Cures is doing their logistics for their biobanking and a whole bunch of things. So uh, we're having a great time and we're gonna see what the results are about the biobank, uh, through the biobanks, when the biobank gets full and all the participants are done, we're gonna send that off. We're gonna get some data back. It's gonna be made public and the dosages will be made available and the effects will be made available. It's probably going to be one of the first trials ever to, to do this, which is like mind boggling. And I can't believe mm -hmm. it, it's taken this long. So uh, you can, the listener can uh, be sure that, you know, they can, whatever they're, if they're going to try it, go to the Ageless RX website, there's this protocol there. There's a number of different doses on different arms. They can even sign up, probably, mm -hmm. and participate and uh, gain the benefits of, of a lot more information than just what I know, that's for sure. And then um, <clears throat> what are, it doesn't have to be longevity related, but what are some books that you'd recommend people check out? It could be uh, like favorite books that you like to recommend to other people, like as gifts or just uh, in general. Well, since the advent of the internet and um, lack of time, I don't actually read a ton mm. except for the occasional paper. Um, 
But I found Asimov's uh, Foundation Trilogy, it sticks That's in funny. my mind, is one of my, one of my favorites. And now that it's been turned into a, uh, into a I think Apple TV has it yeah. as a special. I haven't watched that much of it. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a TV thing. It's a movie thing. I think the book, the books were, were better. Um, Accelerando was uh, a good book that uh, I'd, I'd read. And pretty much all every everything that Ray Bradbury's ever wrote, you know, a lot of the sci-fi stuff. Um, yeah, it's been a long time since I've actually read, read some really taken the time for, for reading. But yeah, that's about it. I don't I don't have a ton of recommendations on books. The, uh, well, a book for you that I recommend is Never Split the Difference because you have to do so much negotiating. It's a great book, and I recommend it to every every one of my science friends. And of a population, the scientists really appreciate it in particular. Like, it really helps uh, their day and stuff. I don't, it's a, have you heard of this book? No, I haven't. But what's the what's the punchline? Because I probably won't read it. But go ahead. But I I'll, I will I will look for it on Amazon. But no, I well, recommend it. It's really good. Yeah. Well, That's well, it. I'm not making a joke. <laughs> But no, no. But what? But what's the? What is not the? I meant the punchline of the book. But that was sort of facetious. What is the main premise or the? Uh... Uh, it's a it's a book about a guy who used to do hostage negotiating, and so it's how to ask questions to understand what people actually want. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. most people don't. Uh, if you ask the right if you ask the right questions, you, people are more likely to tell you things. And at the same time, um, for the most part, people tell you what they want if you ask right. Like there, a couple of my friends were. They're, they're bio, uh, biotech startup founders and they were working with um, like Roche or whatever, like these big people. And they use the techniques to basically figure out like what do they actually care about the person I'm in, interfacing with. And you would think it's like, oh, make, you know, like if you were like new to it, you think this is about making the best product and, you know, helping most people. It's like, no, I need to make, I need to have you have this type of results so I can get my quarterly bonus so I can get this promotion in two years. And it's like, okay, great. Then I know what I need to do so that you are always being a hero. So it's like that type of thing. So that's a, uh, that, the the tenants in the book kind of help people I, with that type it, of thing. It's, it's yeah. So that's kind of like the realization that what people say is almost it's it's a if it bears any resemblance to what it is that they're actually thinking, truly saying, or what your expectations would be, is almost accidental. You know. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's yeah for sure. It's a great great to keep that in mind and to learn how to write actual or ask actual structured questions uh i think is a good thing i'll probably will actually take a peek at it that sounds yeah, like it's a yeah. it's a it's a quick book the audiobook is great too and they even have a master class uh, if you want and what do you want what, what do are, i want who is lowell thompson that's what i want to know like I'll, i will let you know when i discover him it's a continual evolution <laughs> <laughs> right now, I want not to be sick. Yeah. But uh, uh, another uh, another um, <coughs> another recommendation because it sounds like you have like a lot of stress in your life. Uh, yeah. I think you'd I think uh, you'd love like a, a Miyazaki film, like a Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. They're such beautiful stories, and I think they would just give you a little bit like a little bit of hope with everything you got going on. You know, I I actually have never been more hopeful, but at the same time. Mm. It's very much a Schrodinger's, uh, you know, type of what you get out of me depends on the time of day and context. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I can sound cynical, but it is quite deliberate. And um, I can also sound very optimistic. 
But in this case, if we're talking about interventions and how to do it, how to get them, you know, if we're just talking about life and, you know, beautiful yeah. creativity and music, art and stuff, that's, that's, uh, that's the juice of it all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you'd uh, enjoy, like, Nazca in the Valley Wind makes me, makes me want to get into biotech stuff. Like, it's just, it's a very beautiful story. I think you'd just get a kick out of it. And it was mostly, mostly just uh, making a joke. I think uh, that we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff today. But, and then the last question is, uh, how can people help? What, what do you need help with? That the listener can be gal galvanized to either be part of a study, maybe be a part yeah. of uh, research, whatever you yeah, need. Yeah, I think if people have programming skill sets, right now the op we have this open source uh, platform uh, which is being helps people track, record, and measure their data and have it all in one place, which they own. And that's the open source platform. Now we need programmers to help develop standards, you know, of for data sharing. You know, how do we do how do we create this? It's almost like Google Docs sharing. It's really not that different. Like, how do you give people access to your information? How do you limit, you know, access permission? that sort of thing. And um, so we have a little traffic here, apologize. But, oh, no um, worries, we're going long, so I, yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. Please, ed please edit some of my more uh, vociferous uh, types of comments uh, for, like just include them enough to be spicy and not enough to make me sound like a raving, you know, cynic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll do my best. I'm, I typically don't do that much editing. <laughs> I like people just to get like the natural sense of people. Yeah. <coughs> Man, I'm fucking, I'm dying today. That's okay. Uh, we'll, let, we'll, let you, we'll let you go pretty soon. There, or we'll let yeah, you yeah. Right. So then, so you need programmers. Um, what type of programming do you need? Uh, we're, we're looking at Python. Python programming. Oh, Python's bio, fun. Python programming and bioinformatics with a medical uh, spin, you know, so people who are looking at medical uh, health data, bio, biochemical data, bioinformatics with the outcomes, you know, with a health orientation, uh, not so much independent individual diseases, but, you know, what is overall health? How is it defined? Uh, what is the data that's necessary? Biological age scores, you know, what are the top biomarkers that we need? But also, um, just being able to share the data, creating a community. Also, we want to create a, a self-directed research community so individuals can create these ad hoc communities, uh, groups amongst themselves so they can share their data between each other. And they can, uh, but we've got a lot of it. It's a lot of the pieces are already built. And so mm -hmm. we, need, we need the reference ranges. A lot of this stuff is individually available in different databases and uh, those ones are constantly being updated. How do you bring all of these dimensions of data into a single context that's queryable? You know, yeah. uh, and, and that is that is the harder hardest part. And so it's a lot of it is just grunt work, getting out there, finding out who's got the best resources for say metabolite reference ranges, proteomic reference ranges. Um, it's a lot of work. And uh, but once you have this, once you have this resource in place, it becomes the the uh, ground truth, um, the source where everybody would go to. It would be sort of like you know a common. It's a commons. It's a health commons is what it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need people to contribute to the health commons because it is the emergent value of the synergy of those different pieces 
that will give us the answers in the shortest period of time. Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found, subscribe. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. It's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.